Welcome to Sira, meaning her story in Arabic. This is a series of honest and inspiring tales from the most influential women in the Arab world. Raw and unapologetic. In this podcast, you won't just hear stories of women who have broken the glass ceiling. They've smashed it and rebuilt it on their terms. So let's get started. I'm your host, Amina Tahar, and thank you, shukran, for listening. Today, I'm happy to welcome a very special guest who came all the way from New York, Ambassador Lena Zaki Nusayba. She is the UAE's permanent representative to the UN, a graduate of Cambridge and SOAS in the UK, and she's a true brand ambassador for the UAE and women globally. Lena, thank you for joining us today. So let's start with your name, Lena. Who gave you that name and why? Hi, Amina. It's lovely to be on this show with you. I believe my parents gave me that name. Uh, it was a little bit of a conversation in my household. Uh, I do know that. My father wanted a name that would fit easily in both an Arab and a European context. Uh, I think he felt that it's slightly easier in life to go through with, with a name that you can pronounce and that you can spell in the classroom. Uh, my mother really liked the actress Lana Turner, so I think she was happy with the choice. And so they came to an amicable agreement on that. You're making history. You've studied history. Uh, you talk about women in the UAE, um, about history. What is? How did this love of history come to you? History matters in that, you know, history matters in in understanding conflict and understanding why we as humanity go into conflict, how we come out of conflict. I think the data points are, are really important. Uh, and I think that's probably the reason uh, I I love history. I think it's it's in my blood. I think the love of politics and the interest in it is something that I, I grew up with grandfathers on both sides uh, were involved in politics. Lana, your father uh, is a minister of state and he used to be the personal interpreter of uh, our founding father of the UAE, His Highness Leit Sheikh Zayed. What influence did he have on you? Uh, my father, of course, was um, a very influential figure in my life and I think showed me what a life dedicated to public service looks like. I'm not going to say that I thought it was the right fit for me growing up. I definitely didn't uh, think I had that in me, that uh, sense of responsibility and commitment and duty. Um, but I think it definitely led me to a love of a love of reading. It was the only time he wouldn't get cross with us as if he came into our rooms and found us still reading by torchlight under the cover. That was okay, but staying up and talking about anything else wasn't. Um, you know, books were always a big part of our life. There in every single room and corner. I just witnessed a very uh, entertaining debate between my father and my mother yesterday where he wanted to remove one of her wardrobes where she has extra dresses that she doesn't wear very often because he needed more bookshelf space <laughs> for his, <laughs> his golf book collection has apparently expanded. And so this is a man who, by the way, has upward of 50,000 books between here and Elaine, all catalogued and uh, referenced. And he was now telling my mother that her, her cupboard space of dresses, did we really need that? <laughs> could we maybe put another bookshelf there? And she just looked at him and I could tell she was very used to this conversation that had been part of their um, conversation, marital conversation for decades. And so she just resigned herself to the fact she was losing the cupboard space and the bookshelves were going up. Um, that's 
the kind of household I think I grew up in. Uh, he used to drop myself and my sister to school every day uh, to Al Khabarat in Abu Dhabi. And Which is the first British school in the UAE. It was the first British school in the UAE and uh, really a very happy experience for myself and my sister. He would tell us a story on the way and it was either from a Shakespearean play or a Greek tragedy usually. And he would always make sure that as he would reach the school gates, he would reach a cliffhanger moment in the story. So Juliet dies or um, the Cyclops is about to get attacked in his cave and we don't know what's going to happen next. And he says, as he's dropping us off, and you shall find out what happened to Romeo and Juliet when I pick you up in the <laughs> afternoon. And so my sister and I would spend the whole day thinking, what on earth happened? And we'd jump in the car on the way back home. And, and that would be the first question we asked him. I think history is stories. It's it's humankind stories. It's it's love of story. And so when your parents, both of them, my mother is also quite an avid storyteller herself, when they inculcate this love of stories in you as a child, I think it's natural that you find that a passion later on, that it's something you want to study. I'm also, I think, drawn to the political side of the narrative, of human narrative, and I think that's why I'm in the political space. Uh, but it all comes down to what is the human experience and how do we enrich it. So, Lena, your father is not an influential figure just to you. He's an influential figure to the UAE and the Arab world and the world. Um, and he's a minister of state and he speaks several languages. How many languages does he speak? So I think my father is officially at seven and studying his eighth. But I lost count about two languages ago. Uh, I do, I have watched him over my childhood learn those languages and it's a very inspiring discipline. I don't think many of us could study the way he does. He he used to wake up at four in the morning, read newspapers in the language he was learning, then watch the news. And then at the end of the day, I'd come and find him in his library scribbling in that language in a journal. And I'd ask him, what are you doing? And he'd say, I'm writing my journal in German or Italian or whatever language it was. It's the best way to learn. Um, so it requires a huge amount of discipline. But I go, I go back to what I said at, at the start, which is if you don't have a love for something, then you'll never find the discipline and the commitment to do it. I think the love of the language and reading the literature that he loves so much, and English literature is really his passion, but also literature from all the different languages, in the original language is what inspired him to learn those languages, many of which he learned after the age of 21. So there's hope for all of us. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, and you talk a lot about the UAE and saying we're a very value-driven society. Um, can you tell us more about that? Well, I think that as a society, uh, and of course, there's no such thing as a homogenous society, but I think what I notice binds the communities that live here um, is this pride, this, it's almost a outdated word today, but national pride, patriotism, feeling proud of your country, is something that I think uh, every UAE citizen that I meet and talk to, uh, regardless of what profession they're in, feels very, very strongly um, in terms of their heritage and what they are promoting every single day. I always tell also the expatriate community that live and work here, um, and I'm really proud of that, aspect of the UAE that over 200 nationalities live and work here side by side harmoniously. But everyone here is an ambassador for the UAE. And we, we have to remember that because the diplomatic service is only as strong 
as its community, as its strongest community and as its weakest community. And I think all of our communities um, here live a very rich, very fulfilling life. Um, but more than that, they contribute to the sense of what the UAE has achieved in a very short space of time. So if you think about a country that in the 1950s and 60s had to borrow its textbooks for its educational curriculum and its schools and last year put its first astronaut into space in that period of time, it's an extraordinary journey. You literally meet somebody from everywhere when you grow up here and you don't think to ask you know, uh, where is that country or what is this religion that you practice because you're somehow innately part of it. Uh, you can grow up here and be part of a Muslim family and observe all of those traditions. But at the same time, because of the openness of the society, my parents had no issue with us putting up a Christmas tree in our house uh, when we were younger and saying we wanted to wait for Santa Claus on Christmas Eve. Uh, they had no issue with my going and celebrating um, various Hindu uh, celebrations with my Indian best friend at the time. It's unique Emirati identity is something that attracts people from all over the world. But I think when they come here, it's unique melting pot and merge with all the other nationalities uh, and people that live here is also really part of the cell of what makes this country great. What's your favorite book or author or a quote or even a story that your father shared with you? I love, and I think I share this with a lot of my colleagues and uh, other people who come to our house. I love hearing my father describe the UAE when he first got here, where it was, how it was for him as a young man, and uh, where it is today, because it again goes back to this historical narrative. Uh, the history of the country is so tied up into the vision of, of Sheikh Zayed, what he wanted for his people. Uh, the interview I really enjoy watching is one of my father, who's a very dashing, if I might say so, young man at the time. And he was, he used to describe himself as a, a walking press conference in his uh, late 20s because he got here uh, after graduating from Cambridge. And of course, the 67 war had happened and many Palestinian origin families like ours, uh, who were from Jerusalem originally, were looking for a place where they could call home, uh, bring up a family, develop an opportunity and he had connections to to the UAE when his father was ambassador to London he actually met Sheikh Zayed at the time who had come to the the embassy for dinner one evening and my father came down to from Cambridge to to greet him and help host and so he'd had this strange connection to the UAE before even coming here but when you see the pictures of him landing and you see the this tiny little landing strip and essentially tents i mean they're prefab tents that were the living accommodation at the time. And he was a stringer for a number of journalists, uh, for a number of media outlets, uh, Financial Times and others, Reuters, AP. And he used to say he, he would look for the story and then sell it for five pounds. That was a, a lot of money for a young man at the time. Uh, when I hear that, and then I look at what an individual like him has managed to do with his life in, in service of the country and the leadership. But then I look at what everyone around him has managed to do with their lives. It just strikes me as one of the most incredible nation-building stories uh, that I've ever been part of. There's nothing in history that I've witnessed that I feel um, equates to how quickly and how inspirationally we have moved ourselves into modernity. We 
just had our global ambassadors meeting uh, at the foreign ministry where we bring all our ambassadors from around the world together. And they brought uh, Hazan Mansouri to come and speak to us, our, our first UAE astronaut. And exactly what I am describing is the story he was sharing, which is that as a young boy, this is what he, he dreamed of. And that in the UAE, it's incredible that what you dream of can actually become reality if you're willing to show the commitment and the discipline to try and achieve it. And ultimately, if you're willing to do it all with, with the public good in mind, I think that's what drives a lot of people here. What are the things that you teach uh, your two boys? Now, wow. Wow. Uh, <laughs> So one of them is not very teachable. He's seven months, and I'm trying to teach him to keep food in his mouth at the moment <laughs> and chew with his two teeth that have emerged. And he's he's just a bundle of <clears throat> he's a bundle of love and openness and um, happiness. And I think that I don't need to teach him anything. I actually always am amazed when children are born. I think they're as close to perfect as humans ever get. And then as they go through the world. Um, you know, things change, things happen. And they realize that life has challenges that they have to overcome. But as as children, I think they're as close to perfection or divinity even that you can get because they're so innocent and so pure and their intentions are so good. So I, I don't need to teach the seven-month-old much. The seven-year-old, Laith, is uh, a really artistic child. He's a very thoughtful child. He is definitely a lover of stories. So I think he gets that from his grandfather. He loves coming from New York to Abu Dhabi, sitting on his lap, asking him, asking his to tell him stories. And my father is very obliging. And it's lovely to see that relationship, if I'm honest, because he was a very busy father. He was always present uh, and very much part of our lives. But obviously our mother was uh, the main person in the household when we were growing up. And my father was traveling a lot with his highness and Uh, busy building and forging uh, his career. And it's lovely to see him have the time now to engage with grandchildren in a way that is always, and I think everyone has this experience with, with their grandchildren, but it's an experience that's softer because you can enjoy them. And then I think you can quite thankfully hand them back when they've soiled their nappy and it's time for a change or it's time for a snack or they need to go to sleep. You work around the clock. How do you balance it all? Especially because by the time you wake up, you need to kind of catch up with what happened to Abu Dhabi. And, yes. and how do you manage? So I think this is a, a question that a lot of working mothers face. Of course, it's um, you know not something that I'm dealing with in a position of, of the same challenges that others face. I have help. I rely on that help. I'm good at delegating. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, for example, um, Faris's current nurse is a second mother, practically, to, to, uh, to Faris. If you are open to the fact that I think if children grow up in an environment with as many people loving them as they can possibly have around them, I think that's one way to manage the work-life balance. So the importance of grandparents, I can't stress enough. Uh, my husband's parents love jumping on a plane from London and helping out when I'm traveling uh, and, and being around Leith and Faris. Um, my parents, I actually left my baby with them last week. I had to go back to New York and come back again for this women's forum. And it was incredible because I thought they were going to find it quite difficult. And when I walked in, they both looked at me and said, you're back so soon. Are you taking Faris away was their first question. <laughs> And I just felt that he'd brought, you know, life and love to the house and also that they had really enjoyed being able to give 
um, some time and enjoy him. And so having family around certainly helps. Uh, on the balance, as I said, if you're, uh, imagine all the other different contexts where mothers work, and I think I'm in one of the more privileged positions because I have that network of family and support. Uh, I think if you're a mother who's raising her children alone and working, or if you're a mother who can't afford the help, uh, those are really the people who I salute every day, and I find it so admirable that they do what they do. I want to go back in history, and I want to know what were your favorite years? So in my personal history or in the history of humanity? Any, but we prefer in your history. Some one year or one chapter that you would say, you know what, I look back into this chapter a lot because of various reasons. So I can try and, you know, actually I'm well equipped for this because my son Laith asks me this question quite a lot. I don't know if you have this experience with children, but they seem fascinated with the idea of the child version of you. They can't fathom the idea that you, they're, they're grown up, the you know, sort of the mainstay of their universe was once small like them and vulnerable. So he does ask me this question a lot and I have to come up with stories from my from my childhood that he then remembers years later. It's, it's incredible. Uh, one of the ones he likes, and I'll share that one, um, is when I was in Al-Khabairat, I, I loved playing football and I wanted to try out for the football team. There was only one small problem and that was it was a boys football team. There was no girls football team and there was no mixed football team, just a boys football team. And so I signed my name up for the tryouts and then I went home and I told my father, I've, tried, I've put my name down for the football tryouts there next week. And he just looked at me and said, I'm not sure I have to think about this. While he was thinking about it, I spent every evening in the garden dribbling the ball past different cones, practicing scoring, practicing shooting goals, practicing defending. And I was getting as ready for my tryouts as I could be. And this is all age, I think about eight I came into the library a week later and I said, the football tryouts are today. I just wanted to let you know. And if I don't get in, I'll, I'll be disappointed. But he said, I, I just don't think you can try out, Lana. I've spoken to the school and they don't want you to try out. They've said to me that it's a boys team, so you just can't try out. So I said, well, did they say they were going to set up a girls team, which I could try out for? And he said, no, they're not going to do that. There's not enough interest in a girls team and we don't think girls play football. So my eight-year-old self said, well, that's not very fair because I play football and I like football and I'd like to try out for the team. And so he looked at me and he could tell I was really determined to, to do this. So he decided to call up the school and say, you don't offer any other alternative. She'd like to try out. I'm going to uh, authorize her trying out. And, you know, you shouldn't say no because it wouldn't be fair. Now, he was actually thinking that I would try out and not get in. Um, so he was comfortable with this decision. And I went, uh, my very determined little self went to school that day and I tried out. And it was tough because none of the boys wanted to partner with me, first of all, for the tryouts. And then the coach had to make one of them partner with me. Uh, and then, you know, they were a combination of between uh, amused at me being there and a little bit annoyed if I showed any promise at, at the sport. And afterwards, the coach called my father and said, I'm, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to put her into the team. I know you didn't think she'd make it, but she was good enough to make it, and I'm going to have to put her down in the team. So I came home, and my father said, okay, you've proven your point. 
Everyone knows you could get into the boys' football team if you wanted to. Now that you've proven your point, you don't actually want to play, do you? You're not actually going to go for this. And I then had a very serious conversation with him about how if you allow someone to work towards something that they really want to achieve and that is important to them, and then you don't let them benefit from the fruits of that achievement, it would be a really disappointing life lesson. And he succumbed. And so I then joined the football team and played in all their various matches. And at the beginning, the girls found it very strange and made a lot of fun of me. But by the end, they were asking for a girls football team by the time I left the school. And I think the school now has one. That's one of my favorite stories from my childhood because it showed my father compromising. My mother was very unhappy at me coming home with grazed knees and um, you know, bloody shins. And But she also, to her credit, was supportive, although she said, this is not how I imagine my daughter dressing when she goes <laughs> to an after-school activity. Uh, this is not what I imagine my daughter doing. But again, she was also really uh, supportive. But I think it was a story from my childhood that where all of us compromised and, if you like, came to an agreement. It was a mediated solution, um, but one that my son, Laith, likes a lot. I'd say from my boarding school years, he loves any story that involves me being naughty. And I think that's any child about their parents. But the idea that I would get up in the middle of the night and play pranks on people, read, I was at a boarding school, it was an all-girls boarding school, and occasionally there, was, there were pranks and uh, jokes that he finds really um, entertaining. I won't go into them now because I, I don't think it suits my position in life. But needless to say... My husband's always telling me off for telling them to him. He says, you're only going to encourage him to think it's okay. But he, he loves the boarding school years. And I think like I did when I was growing up, the reason I was okay with going to boarding school and leaving my parents is because I grew up on sort of Enid Blyton and the idea of girls boarding schools as being these really exciting places where you made great friends and you had adventures. And in many ways, I think school was that for different reasons. But I think school was one of my big adventures, being that far away from home in a culture that alien to what I had known growing up, uh, and then adapting to it and eventually thriving in it, along with my sister who came with me, I think was was a big adventure. Uh, we've heard from sources mm. that uh, you host one of the best dinners at your home. Uh, we hope we get invited uh, <laughs> soon. And and you also speak a lot uh, when it comes to women empowerment and the importance of networks. So tell us a little bit about networking, hosting, advice to uh, women, younger women, or your younger self that can do better. I was moderating former Prime Minister Theresa May at a panel in the uh, Dubai Women's Forum. And this is one of the conversations that I think was interesting to me and interesting to a lot of women in the audience. And that was, do women in leadership positions have a moral obligation to mentor, help and bring up second and third layers and generations of women uh, into the fold, if you like, make the way easier for them? And it's interesting because every woman I've ever spoken to, even if they don't feel it's their field, but at the end of the day, one of the common threads, I think, is they all recognize that there are certain challenges to women rising in the workforce globally. This is not a phenomenon that's specific to the UAE. And that one of the best things we can do for other women is help make that path a little bit easier. One of the ways I found that it's helpful, I think, in doing that is simply convening women more often together to exchange views, 
exchange experiences, exchange advice on how to deal with various situations. And that's not to exclude men from that conversation. I think men have been very important mentors to me as well. And I think men also form a very important part of the mentorship network. But I think women have some unique experiences that sometimes are a little bit more difficult in certain situations to balance. And that's where this informal network can be helpful. Do you cook? I'm a terrible cook. I'm a terrible, terrible, terrible cook. I will be honest. I like it when I do it. Um, my husband has commented that many of the ingredients seem to end up on the walls rather than on <laughs> plates when I cook. And I think that's my artistic <laughs> streak coming out. Um, and I think the food tastes much better for it. But no, I, I wouldn't invite you around and say that I would be cooking for you. I would arrange that. But I do enjoy looking at it. So it's all takeaways or your cook when you host these beautiful dinners? that we look forward to hear more about? Well, it depends where you're, um, where you're coming for dinner. Here, uh, it's, in, it's in different venues that we, uh, that we cook as a family. And in New York, um, I do a lot of entertaining, both in restaurants, but at home. I won't give you all my secrets in one interview. It's okay, <laughs> for now. <laughs> what do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? That has changed since I had children. Um, I think I had time, a lot more time for the things I enjoyed doing uh, before children. I think post-children, my fun consists of spending time with them. I know that's not a very exciting answer, but the great thing about children is that you really explore the world again with them. The things that you thought you'd done and were part of your history suddenly become exciting again. I never thought I would feel excited about going to Disney World or a children's museum or the children's section of the Louvre even. Uh, or simply going to the park and picking up bugs and caterpillars and fireflies in the summer and putting them in jars. But that's a particular fascination for Lathe. And so all the things that he enjoys and the delight he takes out of the world, I think he just passes that on, that enthusiasm to, to his parents, which is, I guess, the gift of children. I also enjoy seeing my friends. Uh, again, it, I've found that as you get older, you spend more and more time with the people who are important in your childhood. And I have some of those core childhood relationships that I try and nurture with uh, time, essentially, and, and being present for them when they need you. But understanding that it's not uh, the same relationship as when you're in your teens or your 20s and you had all the time in the world to speak every day on the phone and text each other, etc. Uh, so I really do enjoy that time spent with friends. I, I enjoy travel. Uh, I enjoy reading. I enjoy, I love the water. So I always say or I complain if my husband wants to go on a country holiday that involves a lot of mountain and scenic views, I enjoy that for a couple of days. But if I haven't looked at the water, if I'm not staring at water, I don't feel I've switched off. So the water was a big part of my childhood also growing up here and then in my early years working here. I love going out on the boat. I love exploring Abu Dhabi's islands. I love fishing. Uh, I found that very meditative, but also relaxing, um, but also, uh, you know, something that you could just do and achieve at the same time, all three. Um, so fishing was always uh, something I enjoyed. And um, I think those are really some of the key things that I remember as being part of my hobbies when I had the time to have hobbies. Today, unfortunately, I work and spend a lot of time with my children, which which is really the highlight. And making history. Not quite, but I think the country's making history. I get to promote uh, the country that makes that history as it's happening. And that's a great story. And that was Her Excellency Lena Nuseiba. 
on Syria. Thank you for listening. Thank you for having us. <laughs> or thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, which I hope you did, please subscribe to Sira on your favorite podcast app and follow us on thenational.ae. Also, please do leave a review to let us know what you think. This podcast was produced by Aisha Khan, Erika Al-Qarshi, and Arthur Edison. I have been your host, Amina Tahar. Shukran. Thank you.